Welcome to the third interview on the Interview with a PDPod podcast from POSNA. I'm Craig Lauer from the University of North Carolina Children's Hospital, and today I'm proud to bring to you another interview, this one courtesy of the Resident Review Committee from POSNA. The goal of that committee is to educate, engage, and inspire the next generation of pediatric orthopedic surgeons. We have committee member Rubini Pathy sitting down with her mentor and fellow POSNA member, Kishore Mopari, to discuss a variety of topics, including training philosophies, choosing pediatric orthopedics, research innovation, and other things. We'd like to thank both Nick Fletcher and Carter Clement for creating this podcast and for giving us access to share this interview with the rest of the POSNA community. Without further ado, I'll leave it to Rubini. Hi, everyone. I'm Rubini Pathy. I'm here with Kishore Mopuri, our orthopedic surgeon from uh, BC Children's Hospital in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. And as a brief introduction, um, Kishore Mopuri wears many hats. He's a clinician, an educator, a researcher with a clinical interest and research interest in pediatric hip and cerebral palsy, and has been involved in multi-center research teams, including the International Hip Dysplasia Institute, He's also the Pediatric Fellowship Director at the University of British Columbia, the upcoming Canadian Orthopedic Association President, and also a founding member of the Canadian Pediatric Orthopedic Group. Um, and so I would say that your leadership and mentorship have influenced a lot of people, including myself. So thank you for taking the time um, to participate in this POSNA podcast. So here we are, beautiful Anaheim, California. At the Academy of um, at the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine, um, there have been some great sessions so far. Great weather, and to start off with, what has been the most favorite part of this conference for you? So I think what I love the most about ACPDM is the multidisciplinary nature of this. Uh-huh. It's not uncommon that in the room you have a developmental pediatrician, neurologist basic science, genetics doctor, physiotherapist, occupational therapist, and nurse practitioners are orthopedic surgeons. And I'm sure I missed a few other disciplines, but it goes to show the really the multidisciplinary nature of this conference. And so, and you know, our traditional conferences, we have mainly orthopedic surgeons, the ones we attend, and we might have few other specialties that are represented, but here truly there's a broad representation. So the ability to sort of interact with them, learn from them, see how they think, uh, just that's fascinating and really interesting. Right. Now, um, I noticed from my fellowship training with you, you know, you have a huge focus on multidisciplinary teams, and you also want it to be a very welcoming sort of environment. You know, I remember the first time I met you when I called you Dr. Mopuri, you said, no, that's my father. Please yeah. call me Kishore. Why is that important to you? Yeah, I think I truly believe that uh, we live in a world that's flat, mm-hmm. right? We have beautiful sceneries, mountains, and whatever, but if we don't view it that way, I don't think we can open communication with them. Right. I don't want a formal structure to be a barrier for learning. Right. Uh, and once you passed high school, I think it's adult education. Yeah. And sooner or later, they're your colleagues. Say, for example, if somebody's a medical student for four years, then they're a resident for five years, they're a fellow for a year or two. So the same medical students that I taught, now I've come to that vintage now, they're actually my colleagues now. So I I always say treat a trainee like your colleague from the day one. So take the barrier of this formality uh, 
between a student and, and, and a teacher or a mentor and a mentee. I think to me, that's really served well, where people were not afraid then when things go wrong to come and talk to me. Or also people are not afraid to give the feedback because you have taken that formal structure right. between them all. all. Um, and I strongly believe in that. And as soon as I see a medical student is just not a fellow, and I just say, hey, please call me with my first name. And when they ask me about, you know, that that's been a great thing and how can we change things? And I said, well, you do the same. So right. if gradually we start a moment where we take the formality off from mm -hmm. teaching and learning yeah. and we make people really comfortable and not be afraid to actually give it a positive or negative feedback. Yeah. I think that's how we're going to improve the system, whether it's in patient care, whether it's in research or in education. Right. No, that's great. In terms of learning in residency and fellowship, do you feel that learning is different when you're a resident versus a fellow? Yeah, I think I, I wish I had probably some of the thinking that I have now when yeah. I was a trainee. Yeah. And um, the, the big difference, and I guess, is how now some people view service and learning very differently, mm -hmm. right? So I would say they both go hand in hand. You cannot separate out service, so-called what people think is service, to learning. Some people will say, I've done three supercondylars. I don't need to do another one I've done. I don't need to stay that extra half hour to go and do the case. Sure. But if you ask me, residency and fellowships are not much different. If you actually take from the day you meet a patient, whether you're in medical school or whatever, mm -hmm. as opportunities to learn, even if it is so repetitive, even if it's the same fracture clinic you've done a thousand times, I bet every interaction you learn something from patients. And I do that every single interaction. Right. And I think that's really critical. So I think my only plea is for somebody to take those years of opportunity or really your opportunities to learn Test what you want, knowing that there is a backup for you. There's a backup in the form of a staff, or if you're a medical student, maybe a resident. If you're a resident, maybe a fellow. Right. That you can learn from, and you can test some of your creative thinking and your, your ways of approaching, and you can bounce off ideas. It gets a bit more difficult and challenging once you're actually in that state as a consultant, because right. sometimes you feel a little awkward to ask something simple to your colleague. Yeah. But... He shouldn't feel that way, but, you right. know, we do. So my biggest thing for fellows when they come, I always tell them this is adult education. Yeah. They're here for a good time, not a long time. Mm -hmm. And when they leave, if they say they had a great time, that's all that matters. Right. Right. So I think from that point of view, I think for fellowship is a choice. Right. Residency is not a choice. Right. Right. So right. The, those are the two big distinguishing things I would say one must do residency. But after they finish residency, honestly, how many years of fellowship, where, what kind of a fellowship is, is purely a choice. Right. And when you make the choice and the opportunity cost of a fellowship is huge sum of money. If you go straight into a community practice, mm -hmm. you can start earning as a surgeon no matter where you live in the world. Right. But everybody, no matter which system it is, you take a pay cut to be a fellow. And when a fellow takes a pay cut to be there, I don't think as a staff you need to treat them like kindergarten kids. Right. That they are there for a purpose. Yeah. You give them the direction and you give them opportunities 
and provide a safe environment for them to learn. And actually, also, don't underestimate, teach you. I learn from all my fellows when they right. come. Because they come from different training programs. They would have worked with different mentors. And also, you know, sooner or later, they're going to be my colleague a year, year or two later. Right. And some of the fellows that work with me have gone on to become world leaders in their own field. Right. So treat them with respect, teach them, but more importantly, be open to learning from them. Right. When you think back on your own orthopedic residency, yeah. what kind of resident do you think you were and how are you different now? How do you think you've evolved? Yeah, I think I think I reflect a lot on my own training. Yeah. I was scared of my teachers okay. in, in, in India. And in fact, okay. you are, you know, you're so worried about trying to impress them yeah. and not really think about the patient. Sure. But being worried, we eventually did what's the right thing, or in the process, we did what the right thing for the patient. Sure. I made the transition probably somewhere into second or towards the end of my training. Mind you, in India, training is only three years. Okay. And really, when I made the total transition into it's the patient that matters, it's right. nobody else, is when I was working as junior staff at Benjamin Joseph. Okay. Because... When I was a trainee, I had the exam hanging over my head. I was so worried about being assessed. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was fully into actually thinking what's the right for the patient. I was doing what is right for that staff that right. would want me to do. Right. And once I watched very closely without any of that worry about being judged, watched closely the same people that I worked with now as a colleague, mm -hmm that is Dr. Joseph and others, I learned way more, I applied myself way more. Right. And again, I'm going back to the statement I made, that's when I realized no trainee should be worried yeah. or scared to work with somebody or should be thinking about impressing somebody. No, the only person they need to impress is themselves mm -hmm. and the only person, the only other people that they need to impress is really the patients. Right. I think that's great advice because I think a lot of trainees often want to impress their attendings yeah. um, and prove their knowledge. And yeah. you're right, the patient sometimes gets lost. Yeah. Are there any particular um, either procedures or mentors in residency that made you want to pursue pediatric orthopedics? I think, you know, um, my story is um, I actually wanted to be a mechanical engineer. Oh. And okay. uh, my dad forced me to be a doctor. Okay. Because both my brothers are mechanical engineers and he himself was a mechanical engineer, okay. so he didn't want a fourth engineer in the family. Okay. And the closest thing to engineering um, in medicine is orthopedics. Okay. So orthopedics was an easy choice for me. And then I wanted to be a sports orthopedic surgeon. Okay. I wanted to take care of Indian cricket team, so I went to Australia <laughs> to do a sports orthopedic fellowship. Okay. I worked with Benjamin before, so I was got drawn into pediatric orthopedics. Mm-hmm. Since I happened to be there anyway, I thought I'll do pediatric orthopedic fellowships. Uh -huh. So I ended up spending some time in Adelaide, Australia and Melbourne, and the specialty just grew on me. Okay. And I just loved the interaction that you have with children yeah. and also dealing with three generations often, mm -hmm. um, grandparents, parents, and a child is challenging at the same time rewarding. Right. So that's what really got me into the specialty. In terms of a surgery that actually stood with me in orthopedics that really made me 
do what I do and want to do is actually Dr. Benjamin Joseph do a triple orthodesis on a woman who walked basically on a very severe cleft feet with okay. almost a heel pointing forward and her feet, the real feet, actually looking backwards. So huh. it was one of the most severe um, cleft feet that I've ever seen. And okay. she was 18 at the time. And he did this an hour and a half operation to brought her days, her foot was flat. I'm like, gee, this is really cool, and that's what I want to do. Yeah. So really, the foot operations uh, that we, we would see some really severe deformities in India, either for cleft feet or for, uh, you know, polio. And that actually really what got me interested in the reconstructive part of it. Right. Awesome. You often mention Ben Joseph and even Kerr Graham yeah. as people who have influenced your career. Yeah. What is it that um, surprised you most about them? And how? what's the main way that they've influenced your career? Yeah, I think, you know, there are there are a few that I, I would mention that have uh -huh. had a very significant impact uh -huh. on who I am. And clearly, uh, Benjamin Joseph is, uh, I worked with him for six years, three years of residency, and I worked with him almost three years after I finished my residency. Okay. And the, the thing that, is common in all of these people, whether it's Benjamin Joseph, Kerr Graham, Bruce Foster, Steve Treadwell, Chris Riley, they all have amazing passion and dedication for the patients they treat. Mm -hmm. I think they have all placed the patients and every single patient at the top of what they're thinking. They all had very different teaching styles, mm -hmm. but exceptionally passionate teachers. They really took care of their trainees really well, and they took them very seriously. Right. And they had very different teaching styles. And I actually, lucky that I got to work in four different hospitals yeah. and in three different continents with probably 28 different pediatric orthopedic surgeons. And I've learned a ton by watching all of them what to do. Mm -hmm. Mind you, there are sometimes, including our own parents or our own siblings and our children, we look at things and go, I don't want to do that. And trust me, I've also learned in all mm -hmm. these four institutions, either individual interactions or teaching styles or counseling styles, I don't want to do that. Right. I think that's what I tell my fellows. Very, very important yeah. to learn how to be at the same time, how not to be when they look at them. Yeah. Anybody, including me. Yeah. Um, I always tell them they're not going to learn, you know, organizational skills from me because everybody that walks into my room and my <laughs> desk knows that there's paper everywhere. So clearly they're not going to learn that from me. Right. But hopefully there are other things that when they work with me, they can go, well, you know, I like this thing about Keisha. Right. 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 So I think the most common thread with all of them, exceptional patient care, mm -hmm. great teachers, and also cared about science. And if you're working in a teaching environment, mm -hmm. you need to think about the next generation. Right. Right. The medicine only advances if you think about how can I contribute to that. Right. Um, that is through research. So I think that's what's common in all of these people that I've talked about. Right. So you've been part of many different teams, clinical teams, research teams. Why do you think some teams fail and some teams succeed? Are there specific things about those teams that... Yeah, I'm heavily influenced by um, a friend, uh -huh. and I'll 
you know, I don't even call him a mentor. Okay. Um, by the name of Peter Wilkin. Okay. And those of you that want to look up, you should look up Dolphin Brand Strategy okay. on the web. Um, Peter is, he did, he worked in the advertising world and the brand world as with Pepsi, Coca-Cola for a number of years and won Oscar equivalent awards okay. in brand strategy. Okay. I had the good fortune of our children being in this, on the same soccer team. Okay. And in Vancouver, you know, when you're watching soccer in winter, yeah. it's pouring rain and you've got large umbrellas and you've got to somehow kill the time for an hour and a half watching sure. your children, little children play. <laughs> sure. So I got a lot of wise counsel from Peter. Okay. And once I asked him why does he call his brand strategy firm name as Dolphin, um, then he simply said there are three kinds of fish. There are mm -hmm. cop, the bottom feeders, union mentality. You tell them to do what they do, they do it. Then you have sharks, goal-oriented, and uh, they basically get what they want. Right. And to get what they want, they don't mind eating anything that comes in their way, including their own. Mm. Then you have dolphins. Dolphins are highly intelligent uh, creatures, and you never see a dolphin alone, and you always see dolphin in teams and groups. Right. So his thing to me when he was talking to me and he said, well, as I'm telling you this, he took about half an hour to explain this yeah. to set up the stage. <laughs> yeah. And he said, you're probably thinking within your own organization, within your mm -hmm. own family, extended family, friends, who's a dolphin, who's a shark, and who's a cop. Right. Says, first, you need to, if you don't have the innate in you to be a dolphin, become a dolphin first. Right. Then look for other dolphins and treat them fairly, equally, and put other people ahead of you. Mm -hmm. Trust me, they do the same. They try to put you ahead of them. So it's a cycle. Yeah. So the, the talk now I give when, I, when I'm asked to go somewhere as a visiting professor yeah. is exactly that, building teams in surgery the dolphin way. So awesome. I, that's my philosophy, yeah. is that world is flat, whether it's a physiotherapist, occupation therapist, are and those that's working with you, they are as important as you are. Yeah. And when things go wrong, you take the bullet. When things go right, make sure you put them ahead of you. Mm -hmm. When when a time comes to crediting, or if somebody gives you a credit for the success, it's never alone. Nothing happens by one person. If I'm going to be president of Canadian Orthopedic Association two years from now, trust me, that's because of countless number of hours of work, people that I work with over the years, not one, from the day I got into orthopedics, right. that is the reason why I got that position. And I cannot forget their contributions to every success that we have had right. because it's a team effort. Yeah. And medicine is not an individual sport. Yeah. It's a team sport. Yeah. I always tell them the biggest difference between Messi and Hussein Bolt, uh -huh. one need to recognize that. So medicine is not for bolts. We right. all think we're Hussein Bolt, yes. but it, we, we need to be in a team environment. You could yeah. be a very key player, but you have to understand that you truly rely on those 8, 9, 10, 12, 20, whatever is your team is, on them. Yeah. I think that's an important um, message even for trainees because, you know, everyone's sort of trying to get ahead, trying to be the best but realizing that you can only do it with a group of people that can support you and you can support them. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Absolutely. When you think about your own successes and failures, 
Can you think of a time in your career where you might have had doubts about your career path and how you managed to, to overcome that or how you addressed it? Yeah, so I think that is a really, really good question. So uh -huh. I, I, my big word of caution, mm -hmm. especially for being someone like you in your stage of career, as the famous saying people ever, everybody says there is a seven-year age in marriage. Yeah. Uh, trust me, there is a five to seven year, maybe a little bit sooner, okay. itch that comes in practice. Okay. So it's really important to watch for that because that is the phase where people now are talking about burnout. Right. And people are talking about, you know, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I trust me, I went through that phase. It's right around that time I bumped into uh, Peter Wilkin. And actually, one of my trainee and fellow... Uh, both at the same time in a span of about two weeks told me that Kishore you're becoming cynical right okay. and so that only happened as I said A they cared about me B because we had open communication right thank God for me having that kind of relationship with them they actually reached out to me and said you know yeah you're not the same person you were three years ago right and trust me between then and now nothing has changed the only thing that's changed is me and my thinking. Mm -hmm. And realizing all that matters is now. Right now, for example, it's you and me talking about this this podcast. That's all that matters, nothing else. Right. And when I started living in the moment, yeah. and when I started thinking about the world is not going to end tomorrow, right. the world is a, a happier place, yeah. and we need to be a part of creating that happiness within ourselves first and with those around. Right. And I think to me, yes, for sure. If you ask me, did I go through that phase? Yes. Yeah. Did it happen overnight? No. Over a series of things where you think that, oh my God, this is not what I expected. Right. This is not how it's going to be. Right. But the thing now that I, I tell everybody is if you are told when you're 15 years of age that you would be doing what you're doing now, right? whether you're a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, uh -huh. whether you're a physiotherapist, or whoever is listening to this, yeah. if you're told when you were 15 that one day you'd be doing what you're doing, trust me, 99.9% .9 of the people would say, I'd take it in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's so true. If I go to a school and I tell somebody that, hey, you're going to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and you will be working in one of the hospitals, whatever that might be, it could be a community hospital or whatever, yeah. trust me, they would take it today, yeah. right? And that's the same holds good for me. So I'm incredibly lucky to be where I am, what yeah. I'm doing, and I truly believe in that. Yeah. I, even though we all of, all of us surgeons by nature, we're megalomaniacs, uh, we think we're God's <laughs> gift to man, womankind, but I yeah. think we need to remind ourselves that we're incredibly fortunate to be where we are, and to have that opportunity to actually do a very gratifying field mm -hmm. of helping others. Yeah. And I think that's a, an opportunity that not many people have. Yeah. And I think once you realize that, I don't think you'll ever look back. Yeah. No, and I think that's true, not just in career, but in life in general. Yeah. You know, when you're feeling that things aren't going your way, to just realize how much you have. And how much you've achieved yeah um no that's great what is it right now that you love the best about your career i think what i love the best about is is a 
um, the environment that I work in. Yeah. And uh, the opportunity that we all have in our own way to make a difference globally. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I tell everybody is to think about, yes, your your immediate goal yeah. is be relevant to your own setting. Like I practice in Canada, I practice in British Columbia. So anything I need do need to have an impact, whether it's through research or teaching or whatever, the immediate group that whoever that I'm associated with. But the opportunity now, because of the world is connected in very many different ways, especially through digitally, mm-hmm. you could make an impact sitting at home globally. Yeah. And do not forget that what we do sometimes is only relevant to 10, 15% of the world. Mm-hmm. How do we make that relevant to the other 80% of the world that we don't directly interact with or communicate with? Yeah. And to me, that opportunity excites me. And that's been my last five-year journey is how do we get more relevant with the research I do, right. whether through international dysplasia registry or slipped capital family devices registry, some of the efforts we're doing developing care pathways in India and China uh, with DDH and now Ecuador. If you look at it, the mean age in our registry in the Western centers is about three to three and a half months. Okay. And India and China, they're between two and a half to three years of age. Wow. So here we're trying to fine tune the system, but there mm-hmm. we have a long way to go in trying to reduce walking age dysplasia, right. which is 90% of the patients that are being inputted into the database. Right. So if you ask me, that is an opportunity that, that excites me to make a difference. Right. I think that opportunity exists for every single person that is listening to the podcast in their own way. You don't need to be coordinating a big study, but in your own way, think about how what I'm doing is globally relevant. And I think you can. And also that's very important that we pass that on to the next generation. We need to be very relevant to what we do in our own institutions, organizations, but we also need to think more broadly. In terms of... um being able to balance all of this because, you know, you're very busy clinically teaching research, these global projects. You mentioned earlier burnout. How do you balance these things? Like, what does that mean to you in terms of like a work-life balance? I think think my advice to really young uh, people that are just starting out, um, which I probably did not pay that much attention the first few years, but I, Uh I, I pay a lot of attention now is your families. Again, I've done a little mentorship exercise to everybody. I gave them little postcards and asked them to write what were the three important things for them when they were 15, 20, 25, 30, 35. Okay. For most people, somewhere between 25 to 35, the family comes, Mm -hmm. whether it is your spouse, partner, children. And then when you get to my stage where now your, your, like your, your children probably need a little less of your help, but you're getting to a stage where your parents may need a little bit of your help. Right. Help. Very important to keep that in mind. Right. Whatever you do, think about the impact. There will always be an impact. So yeah. there's nothing you take on the world that will not take away from some of your family time. Right. But they are probably the most important people that need your attention and your care 
and your help. Mm -hmm. Same way they help you, they support you. So, for example, I wouldn't be where I am today if my wife um, did not put her career on hold to support me. Right. Right? And when it came time, when she's trying to get back in, I needed to be around to support that. And mm -hmm. that's very, very important. Yeah. And I think everybody needs to pay attention to that. Same with your children. Your children don't have anybody other than you right. to look after them, advocate for them, be there for them, yeah. both through their tough times as well as through their successes, right, to yeah. share. So th that is a very important thing that I'm cognizant about. Yeah. I, I'd say probably I make it to 80% of all of my children's oh, activities, games, whatever. I don't yeah. make it to 100%, 80. Yeah. I... Go to meetings now, not the whole meeting, probably a part of the meeting. Okay. Because I want to be back home yep. in time. Yeah. And to ability to make those kind of choices is critical. Right. And I'll tell you a story of um, my own journey, and I think that's what's actually changed everything for me. I was trying to get this group together in Canada called Canadian Pediatric Orthopedic Group. Right. And... Uh, it was a meeting in 2012. They were going to elect the founding president. And we had a, a lot of people that I've actually personally invited to come to the meeting. They were all coming. It was my son's birthday, and I think he was he was nine years old at the time. Okay. So I called him in the morning to wish him happy birthday. And he said, Dad, so you're basically not going to come home my birthday I said no I'm coming tonight he said well but it'll be 11 p.m. by the time you get back oh. I don't know what occurred to me I called the airlines and changed my ticket walked up to the meeting and told whoever was going to vice chair and I just said I'm sorry I'm going back home sure. and I remember one of the senior uh, pediatric orthopedic surgeons in the country at the time Doug Hedden he said, uh, as I was leaving, he said, Doug, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to Vancouver. I'm going to miss the meeting. And he's like, is everything okay at home? And I said, yeah, everything is fine, but it's my son's birthday. And he said, Kisho, when you sit on the plane and when you take off, trust me, you will look at yourself and this would be a very defining moment where you made a choice to be with your family. Trust me, that'll help you. And he said, I wish I'd made more of those kind of decisions. And when I landed in Vancouver, I got a text from Sukti. Mm -hmm. In my absence, they've elected me as a founding president. Oh, that's right? awesome. So yeah. what that means is people understand yeah. that we have other commitments. People sure. understand that we're real people. We have, we have things. If it's meant to happen for you, yeah. one way or the other, yeah. it is going to happen. Yeah. But to put everything or you under stress or your family under stress those that need you under stress to do something sometimes is is something that we should stay away from yeah it's okay to say no to things when you really think that that's probably not the right time for you right same with the number of leadership opportunities that have come my way mm -hmm. i never had a problem saying no from that moment on because everything is a choice right Right. What we do, how we do, what we get involved in is yeah. a choice. Yeah. When we think we don't have choice is when we get stressed. Right. And it sounds like, you know, prioritizing in terms of what is important to you at that point in time. Absolutely. Is how you're going to make your decision. Yes. Yeah. And it's okay to accept change. We're different. Like, you know, yeah. uh, 
probably when you work with me as a fellow, I had more hair than I do, I do right now. So yeah. same way, like how our body changes, we do change our thinking changes. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I think the most important thing is to accept who you are, mm -hmm. where you are, and what's going on around you. Right. right. Don't try to change it. Accept it. So I think acceptance is the is the beginning to actually, if you want to change. Right. First, you've got to accept things the way they are. Right. And, and I couldn't stress upon again for everybody, be present. All that matters is now, mm -hmm. right? And, and when you are actually thinking about something but not really enjoying the moment that you're in yeah. is when I think we get into those kind of things like a burnout. Well, I think that's also being mindful in a sense. You know, people exactly talk right. about being yeah. very mindful. Yeah. Um, and I think especially, you know, as trainees, because people talk about trainee burnout, not just attending burnout, yeah. is being mindful and being in the moment, just trying to get as much benefit from that moment as possible and not worrying so much about the future. Yeah. Um, in terms of previously you were talking about sort of global outreach, and your experiences globally. You had a chance to be a traveling fellow. And what did that experience mean to you in terms of meeting other people from other parts of the world and visiting other parts of the world in addition to you know, your training that you've had in other parts of the world? The number one thing um, that I want to tell everybody, if you have an opportunity yeah. to do one of these traveling fellowships of any kind, mm -hmm. trust me, do it. Because it does two things. Number one, it validates and it tells you, you're not doing too bad. Mm -hmm. So that was the first message okay. that I got, no matter where you went, yeah. you actually have it good. Some of the issues that we think only you're dealing with every day, your institution, and whether you call challenges or politics, everybody's do, facing the same thing, right? right? right. So you, that's the number one thing that I've realized is I have it really good. I have great colleagues that work in a really good environment, yeah. good hospital, and really nice people that I work with, and incredible patients, right? So that's, I think, the first thing that I've learned. Second is through informal exchange mm -hmm. is where actually most of learning happens. Okay. The places where it was very formal when we were on the fellowship was very different from places where they made it very informal. Okay. So that's why whenever I have visitors, I try to have a lot of opportunities for informal conversations, okay. especially with our trainees and with our support staff, because that's where actually a lot of discussion and dialogue happens. Right. And um, to me, that's very, very important. Right. And I've learned a ton in those five weeks in England, and uh, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand. It was truly amazing to visit 15 different centers uh -huh. and interact with, these are all leaders in their own way. And some of the work they were doing, obviously I wasn't aware of because they're orthopedic surgeons or researchers, not necessarily purely related to pediatric orthopedics, but anything in general. Right. And that leadership exchange, that opportunity to actually interact is definitely one of the highlights of my career. I almost can sort of think of myself as pre-ABC fellowship and post-ABC fellowship. Uh -huh. And that's what I've heard even from uh, the recent ABC um, um, you know, uh, 
fellows, yeah. that, that's exactly how they define. Okay. If you talk to anybody that, that's done, uh, that fellowship would say that same. And I bet the same holds good for a lot of other traveling fellowships. So don't think about this as an opportunity to learn pediatric orthopedics. Right. More any of these traveling fellowships, look at them as opportunities to take a pause in your busy life, mm -hmm. to reflect on who you are and enjoy and recognize that you actually have an amazing place where you're working at and the people. And then be open to sort of other ideas, learning with others and talking to other people, right. whether they're orthopedic surgeons in that center that you're visiting or the coordinator that's organized the whole trip. Right. right. In terms of, you know, a diversity of ideas and people, um, how do you think diversity in pediatric orthopedics has changed over time? And how do you think it influences the profession? Yeah, Posner is very different. I remember my first Posner meeting uh -huh. was 2000, and I was actually the first fellow probably ever presented at Posner because you had to be a member for a minimum of two years before you could present. Okay. And I probably was the youngest to present till that point in time because I was Indian Pediatric Orthopedic Society's member. Okay. And so Alliance Society members could present papers. And India became member for the first time that year, so I presented a okay. paper on behalf of uh, Indian Pediatric Orthopedic Society membership. From then on, so if you think about it, very restricted, right? Yeah. And to now, we have a very open, inclusive mm -hmm. membership mm -hmm. and presentation policy. So I always say, if you're exclusive, one day you'll be excluded. Mm. If you're inclusive, you'll be included. So yeah. I'm all for whether you call it a society or you know, or um, any of my thinking with groups, with research, to whatever, yeah. you have to be inclusive yeah. of people and, and try to bring people together. As we wrap up, is there anything, any final words you'd sort of like to say to the general audience um, in terms of recommendations to current residents or fellows or people who are thinking about a career in pediatric orthopedics? In terms of final words of advice. Yeah. It, it, it is a, an amazing field uh -huh. and extremely collaborative. I, I'm probably biased because I'm, I'm, I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. Um, no matter which society you take, and you know, Posner is certainly the, the largest pediatric orthopedic society that's out there. Um, whether POSI, Pediatric Orthopedic Society of India, which I'm very closely associated with, or CPAC, Canadian Pediatric Orthopedic Group. Mm -hmm. There is a, um, how do I say that? There's a personal touch. Yeah. People are very welcoming. People are very open. People are open to new ideas. And people are very inclusive. So I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for people to associate themselves in this global world of pediatric orthopedics and, and, and really be that person that can be a part of a change and improved outcomes and extremely gratifying is what I would say. I, I mean, I can't describe any other way. Yeah. Now that, you know, I'm here, I can't see myself what it would have been if not for pediatric orthopedics. So right. I, I cannot endorse enough. That being said, 
they should do whatever they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And sometimes very difficult to judge right after medical school what you're going to do. Right. But the the plea is to just to enjoy whatever they're doing. They're all great fields. But if you choose children's orthopedics, trust me, you're in for a lot of excitement. That's awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much for spending your time. Um, it's actually been a great learning experience talking to you. You've had some great points, some great uh, pieces of advice that I think will be helpful to everyone, not just trainees. Thanks again. Thanks for being here.